Hey, everybody. Or should that be hi, everybody? Welcome to the June 2011 Sephira 5771 edition of The Colcast, the premier, and I believe only, podcast for all things Jewish a cappella. This is Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Gorf, sitting in for Mike Boxer, who I'm told is simply too broken up from mourning Rabbi Akiva's disciples to pull it together this month. So here I am. But who am I? Why did Mike Boxer entrust me with the honor, and believe me, it is a sincere honor, of being the Colcast's first guest host? Well, you know the old joke? You have a face for radio? Clearly, Mike thinks I have a pun in for podcasts. And he wouldn't be the first. Or the last. I'm the producer of Bitachon, Kol Zimra, Jewish Acapella Treasury, Voices for Israel, and a bunch more, but most notable to this listening audience, Bojack. Bojack! The best of Jewish Acapella, a franchise now in the most capable hands of the man the Jewish forward called the go to guy for Jewish Acapella, Mike Boxer. Now, New York area and internet radio personality Nachum Siegel has called me the king of Jewish a cappella. Hoo-ha. It may have to do with my having been there at the beginning of Jewish a cappella, and some say I was the beginning, the first Jewish aka or jaka. Although, as Yoda said, No, another there is. After all, ain't no Jewish a cappella without others, many others, singing in harmony. And, of course, arguing during rehearsal. I'll be joined by a very special guest, the godfather of Jewish a cappella, to chat about this. So stick around or cheat and fast forward your iPod. But do come back or you'll miss all the free stuff. Okay, there is no free stuff, but there is music you literally won't be able to hear anywhere else, beginning with this first track, a mashup of two different versions of the same song recorded a decade apart. Why I've selected this as our first song, I'll explain after the song. Beat Achon, performing Karibon on the Colcast. <laughs> Kodesh 
on the Colcast. I'm your guest host, Gorth. And just before Passover, I served as one of the judges in the Kol Ha'olam program in Washington, D.C., billed as the first National Collegiate Jewish a cappella contest. Congrats to Queens College Tizmoret for taking the top prize in a tough field of competition. Way to go. Mike Boxer talked about his experience emceeing the event in a recent Colcast episode, and I agree with everything he said. In particular, his observation that every group was a winner. Couldn't agree more. In fact, I nearly forgot to score the opening group because I was so captivated by the remarkable singing and, moreover, choreography that they performed. A cheer squad-style double-person lift? Get out! When I was at Boston University, I had a hard enough time just getting off my couch to do homework. Where do you students find the time? Hats off, but yarmulkes on, to all of you collegiate jockas. I'm incredibly proud and inspired by your hard work and dedication. Keep it up. Jewish a cappella has come so far. The Kol Haolam concert was attended by nearly a thousand people watching 10 outstanding Jewish a cappella groups. At last count, there were more than 50 worldwide. I couldn't have dreamed of this kind of breadth and success at the beginning. It was the year, well, it was a while ago. I joined together with five other out of towners transplanted to the Upper West Side of Manhattan to found Bitachon, the first professional Jewish a cappella group. That first track you heard was, as I indicated earlier, a mashup of the same song. You see, we recorded the first part in the analog age, a time when groups rehearsed and recorded as a group. No individual tracks, no Pro Tools, no pitch correction, <gasps> magnetic tape, and razor blade splicing. Can you believe? The second part of the song was recorded in the digital age. And you know something about that. Certainly, the digital piece is cleaner than the analog piece. But one of the themes I want to focus on in today's podcast is performance. As you listen to the tracks that we play, I want you to ask yourself, which parts engage you emotionally? Which parts move you? We'll talk more about this theme with our upcoming special guest. But I want you to bear this question in mind in our next Analog Digital Mashup. This time, starting with a Bitachon song and segueing into 613's rendition. Here is Godlu on the Colcast. Cool. Hey. 
Godlu, a mashup of Beat Achon from our second album, Ochel Nafesh, Soul Food, and 613 from their sophomore CD, Encore. This is Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Gorf, and you, my cherished listener, are checked into the Colcast. Before the song, I asked you to focus on performance. Earlier, I remarked that Jewish a cappella had come so far. When I started, I could only have dreamed of digital tools that mold the recording to perfection like we have today. The one thing technology cannot manufacture, however, is a good performance. And by good, I mean that spine-tingling, goosebumps-inducing vocal that connects us to the song's meaning and captivates us. Computers can pull a group into the pocket to be in time and on pitch. Feeling. Ah, feeling. That comes only from the heart. It's an ineffable quality, one that, in my opinion, and I've been around the acapella block a few times, too often gets lost in the quest for technical perfection. Let's have a listen to our next track, which is, if I'm not mistaken, my first collaboration with Mike Boxer. 
At the risk of embarrassing the poor guy, let me say that the reason that I'm drawn to his work is that I consistently hear a conscious effort to not overshadow and indeed highlight performance. And not just in his recordings. 613, the group he performs with and produces, can reproduce their rich and complex recordings in live performance without losing anything. Incidentally, part of the reason I'm putting up my own productions as examples in this podcast is because this is a show that celebrates Jewish a cappella. If I'm going to ask you listeners to think critically, I'm going to put my own feet to the fire first, lest, heaven forbid, I inadvertently slight someone else. Not my intention. Then there's the other part. Free publicity. But seriously, I've become aware that many of you have never heard this music, and it's my pleasure to introduce it to you. I really hope you're enjoying it. Okay, the song. All I gave Mike to go on, indeed all I'd worked out, was my original melody, which I sang poorly and provided him as an MP3. Here's a snippet. Now listen to the final track, Mim Komcha, from Acapella Treasury, Volume 1, Shabbos, on the Colcast. <laughs> Na na 
A song is a story. A good story takes us on a journey. What makes the journey interesting is the storyteller. In a song, the story is the music. The journey is the arrangement of that music. And in a cappella, our storyteller is the vocalist. I'm Gorf, and this is the Colcast. In the song we just heard, Mim Komcha, or should I say Mim Koimcha, I was blessed to have the singer Ofi Nat as our storyteller, and Mike Boxer to guide us on our musical journey as the arranger. This is one man's opinion, but I think they did an outstanding job. Why? Very simply, I enjoyed it. What better barometer is there than that? And as the songwriter, I've heard this melody a bazillion times, so if I'm moved, that's a pretty good sign. I realize I'm simplifying things, but simplicity brings clarity, especially in music. In the heat of the creative process, we sometimes lose track of the basics. So whether we're yodeling oohs and ahs around one mic, or synthesizing multiple tracks with the latest and sophisticated recording, editing, and mixing techniques to mimic musical instruments note for note, we should always keep our eye, or ear as it were, on the performance. Back to Mim Komcha. Listen to the way Mike arranged the song, clean and uncluttered, with a slow build to a thunderous conclusion. What an emotional journey. Listen to the heartfelt emotion that Ophi invested in his vocal. What a dynamic performance. Moreover, we don't have to even understand the literal meaning of the Hebrew words. Because of Mike and Ophi, we feel them. Certainly as the songwriter, I'm biased, but I'm also going to be more critical. In fact, that's why I don't sing the lead vocal on the recording. As producer, I judged objectively that I wasn't the best casting, so I fired myself. Again, this is all my opinion. I welcome your thoughts. I'll share with you my contact information at the end of the show. Promotional plug alert! A second acapella treasury is in the works, and my plan is that it will include a brand new and, dare I say, historic Boxer-Gorf collaboration. We'll keep you posted on that one on The Colcast. Okay, since this podcast is centering around Jewish acapella history and the art of performance, there's no better Jaka luminary to join us in the conversation than my special guest. Ladies, gentlemen, and fishmongers the world over, please welcome the godfather of Jewish a cappella, Daniel Henkin. Godfather? Kiss the ring. <laughs> oh, what's the reason that you are called the godfather of Jewish a cappella, Daniel? Uh, Jordan, the reason is that you have called me that. <laughs> um, but beyond that... Um, I've I've seen myself as more the uh, uh, a godfather of Jews in a cappella. Um, the Jewish a cappella part has come has come over the years, but I've been doing this uh, for a long time. Why did you form an a cappella group for Jews, and what was that group called? I formed a group called the Columbia Cliffhangers. That was in the uh, spring of 1988. And I was a junior at Columbia College in New York City. And I was looking to sing in an a cappella group, um, a regular, secular, American college a cappella group. Um, and uh, I guess uh, necessity is the mother of invention after trying out for the all-male group on campus and not getting in three times running, uh, decided if you can't... Uh, if you can't join them, you start your own. Acapella, that's Jewish, started as a breakaway. How appropriate. Secondarily, I was looking to be able to sing secular acapella, but not have to worry about uh, Shabbat concerns. I don't know whether I would call the Clefthangers uh, a Jewish acapella group in any real sense of the term. It was a, it was a secular acapella group that was available to Jews. So uh, the Jews in a cappella is how I sort of see that.
offered sponsorship by the Columbia Hillel initially when I started the group, and I politely declined because I was concerned that we would be viewed as a Jewish a cappella group, which would translate into only getting Jewish students. We weren't singing Jewish music. Uh, there was no reason to restrict our membership to just Jews. Uh, this was, this was, um, I guess, part of the American dream, uh, uh, allowing uh, observant Jews to be involved in the in the um, in the culture around them. It was the dream of all Jews at that time to cover Casey and the Sunshine Band. That is absolutely <laughs> exactly. true. I am careful to differentiate Jewish a cappella and a cappella that Jewish people performed in, secular a cappella groups that they performed in, not to mention vocal acts that occasionally performed a cappella, such as Kolachai. To your knowledge, were there any Jewish a cappella groups as we've come to know them at that time? There was Pizmon. Uh, when I say there was Pizmon, I think um, there may be some disagreement, depending on who you ask, as to when they started. I believe Pizmon says that they began in 1986, which would have predated the cliffhangers. Um, my recollection uh, is that there was a group called something like Jewish Outreach Through Music, uh, through the Hillel, that went and performed Jewish music, perhaps a cappella or exclusively, I don't know, uh, at in various uh, senior centers and other places doing Jewish outreach, but that it became uh, what is now known as Pizmon at some point afterwards. My recollection is that Pizmon was more of a choir at that time. <laughs> Mainly because most of us didn't really know what a cappella was. Even in the secular world, rock cappella was just being formed. Uh, there may have been a couple of other professional groups that were influencing us. I can't remember when Spike Lee's Do It a Cappella. That was later. That was 1991, I believe. Okay, so that was about the time that I got into it. So I when would you say that choral, Jewish choral music, began to morph into what we now know as a cappella? Traditional choral, choral music is more about um, independent uh, lines, and so it's, it tends to be more polyphonic. It could be imitative. They're often saying uh, every line has a, often has lyrics. Um, so the the outer line, the tenor line, each line can often stand on its own, and it's about the the horizontal lines and how they come together. Contemporary a cappella uh, is more about a solo saying words and background saying syllables, often trying to imitate instruments. Uh, it's more um, sometimes it's more homophonic, uh, where it's about vertical chords and color and things of that nature. Um, so in that way, whether it's Jewish or secular, that's, uh, that would be a distinction. I mean, the, the Jewish choral move, movement is, I guess, known best through, through Zamir, um, has been around for a long time, and certainly it predates any of the Jewish contemporary a cappella. Definitely have to give a tip of the hat to Mati Lazar and Zamir and Hazamir. I know that one of my foremost experiences with performing Jewish a cappella was at one of these Amir Chorale festivals over the summer, and we'll talk about that a little later, perhaps. But I'm curious, tell us quickly, after, well, what were you doing at Columbia University, and chart for us your graduate, postgraduate, and career path so we get an overview of your illustrious career. Sure. I, I was... Uh... I can well. I can begin with my first a cappella experience because that would probably be relevant here. Um, after going to to the, the Ramaz School in in Manhattan um, and graduating from Ramaz, and I had begun getting into singing there in high school, um, and not necessarily a cappella, but just some singing and harmonizing. And my first experience with a cappella was not Jewish at all. I was in Israel for a year, and I returned home for, for Pesach vacation, uh, looking forward to my freshman year at Columbia. And my, I grew up right near Columbia, and my father had been a professor there. And I remember walking over to Barnard's campus um, 
on Cholamoid uh, or Yantif, one of the one of the days of Pesach, and sitting down on the lawn, and there was a uh, performance by the Columbia Kingsmen, the all-male secular a cappella group. And it was probably the first time I had heard contemporary a cappella, and I sat down on the lawn, and these ten guys come out, all-American, good-looking, uh, college guys, and with no instruments, and but, but save for a pitch pipe, and they blow that note, and they open the mouths, and I was blown away. <clears throat> and, and though I'd studied music, I'd studied piano for years, this was this lit a fire under me, and I was, I, I was determined that this is what I wanted to do. It was, it was eye-opening. Um, so, Not to mention the fact that you had all those fawning Barnard co-eds. That probably had some influence on your decision as well, yes? Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I will, I will readily admit there was a huge, huge social component to contemporary a cappella um, and contemporary collegiate a cappella. Um, and, um, yeah, like there was, there was a sense that um, you were a local rock star. If you were in, if, if you were on a campus that valued a cappella and you were in that, that top group, um, you were set. Um, I, I remember anecdotally a conversation when I was a senior, um, and I just started, I was a junior, we had just started, we were barely on the map, and there was some Jewish kid, but he was a freshman, and he had just gotten into the Kingsman, and my roommate, who was a senior, turns to me without any irony at all after seeing him at his first concert and says, Noah is set socially for the next four years. I recall very distinctly being at a concert that the Columbia Clef Hangers gave in Earl Hall, which was the cavernous yet intimate hall where most of these events took place. And it was absolutely filled up, and you guys took the stage, and you sang a Jewish song that was, in fact, in Hebrew. Do you recall the song and the circumstances of that song? Uh, I recall a song. The song is called Horini, um, and... Uh... As with many things in the Clefangers and in the rest of my music life, um, there are often very personal decisions uh, that I make when coming to choose music. People ask how I choose music, and I, I don't. I don't have a particular method. I don't even have a necessarily a theme. Um, I go to a song that speaks to me. So that song, Horemi, which I think was by Yerachmiel Albigun uh, from the early seventies. Uh, it was my favorite song I remember as a kid at Ramaz. I remember learning it when I was in the third or fourth grade, and I, I that was I was not didn't have a particular affinity towards Jewish music. I really liked that song, and I decided, you know what? Um, after the, after the Clefangers was established, this, this is probably if you're remembering uh, the concert in the hall. My guess is. It was at least our second, perhaps our third year being around. I would, I would have been very careful to shy away from Jewish things in our first year because I didn't want to um, it, turn away either the secular Jews or the non-Jews uh, who might be interested in the cliffhangers. Once we had established ourselves as a group, I must have decided, oh, I love the song, I'm going to do an arrangement. Uh, it was all oohs and ahs in the background. There were no words that anyone had to learn except for the soloist. Uh, the soloist was Jimmy Opsbaum, who was Jewish and had uh, some Jewish background, so she was able to handle the Hebrew. It was very influential. It sounds, by the way, like they're coming to take you away, so I'll try to make this as <laughs> yeah, quick no, as possible. I'm just talking to you off of my apartment in Broadway, so it's a little noisy, the big city. Now, I've got a little surprise for you, Daniel. I happen to have a recording of that song made at that concert, and I'm going to play it for everybody right now. <laughs> I hope it's good, but okay. Looking forward to hearing it. Horani by the Columbia Clefhangers, circa early 1990s or so, recorded with a hand tape recorder by Gorf, your guest host on The Colcast.
Daniel, what did you study at Columbia? And you said you started at Ramaz, the venerable high school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. You eventually would come full circle back to Ramaz. Fill in the gap for us. Sure. I studied uh, music and philosophy at Columbia. I was a double major. After Columbia, I went to graduate school at Indiana University's School of Music and got a master's in music composition. 11 years at the Yeshiva Flatbush in Brooklyn and Salma Shechter Day School of West Orange in New Jersey, um, teaching music and directing choirs. Four years ago, I uh, came back to Ramaz after a 22-year hiatus and um, took over as director of music at the Ramaz Upper School. And I direct Tizmoret and uh, do a variety of choirs. So I have about five uh, five ensembles currently. I would say that you are way underestimating your influence with a whole generation, probably more than one generation, of Jewish singers in the New York, New Jersey area, and by extension, all the places that your students have gone to post-graduation. Uh, I think that influence can best be summed up or exemplified for me by an experience that I had with you personally. We were at the Acapajusa, I think that's what it's called, event mm-hmm. that Mike Boxer organized. That was at Makor back when it was on, what, 67th Street or something yep. on the west side of Manhattan? That's right. They had a, a nightclub-type atmosphere downstairs in the basement, and about 300 uh, jakas, as I like to call them, Jewish acapella fanatics, crowded into the basement to see a number of different groups. One of them was my group, Itachon, and I would say that that's probably the best concert we've ever given. We we just had such a wonderful time and got such a wonderful reaction after having come back out of retirement after five years of not singing together. Sure. And uh, that it's a whole story about how easily it came back to us again. It shows the power of rehearsal. But I remember towards the end, somebody got up on stage, maybe you, you remember exactly who it was, and said, how many people here know Daniel Hankins' arrangement for, and I don't remember which song it was, but spontaneously, the entire room broke out, 300 people, in an a cappella arrangement of your song. It was just remarkable and moving to me to see how much you have, as I said before, influenced so many singers to love this kind of music, and more importantly, to be professional in their execution of this type of music, which leads me to the next question, and that is, talk to me a little bit about performance. When you are directing a group, whether it's your arrangement or not, what are you looking for in the performance? That's a good question. When you say the performance, I would I would focus I focus primarily on the music. It would be interesting to chart the direction contemporary acapella and, by extension, Jewish contemporary acapella has taken over the past 10 years. Um, I think when people say performance now, they include many extra musical things, such as choreography. For me, it's been first and foremost about the music. It's about preparation, the tightness of the sound, trying to be spot on with the entrances. One thing I've gotten from Hazamir experience was to think about bridging the gap between the contemporary style and the choral style and things like uh, vowel shape and rounded tones that uh, people may think of more in the purview of the choral world. Those can be brought to bear in making your contemporary a cappella song sound more attractive as well. So for me, it really comes down to the music, and I'd say only recently um, have I, you know, been paying a little bit more attention to the look, I guess, and to choreography and things like that. That's not my. That's not why I went into a cappella. It's not my strong suit, um, but I do see how it. It, it can enhance a performance, and so I do think there is a value in it, but it's not uh, where I put most of my energies. While it seems that the technology has gotten better at recording the clarity of the voice and making such interesting sounds and textured and layered arrangements come to life, one of the things that we've lost is the performance aspect that we used to have live. 
Our pitch may not have been absolutely perfect, but there was an energy and most particularly an emotion that came through that I think many times gets lost or at least is much harder to maintain or find in contemporary recordings. As one of the few people arranging, performing, directing, and recording Jewish a cappella that spans both eras, the analog age and the digital age, what do you find about the challenges of getting a good performance, quote-unquote, on tape? You've touched on a, on a big topic here, um, one that I had strong feelings about. Um, and uh, I'm, I'll see if I can answer you, your question uh, first. Um, I do think it is a challenge with uh, the way uh, contemporary acapella, the direction contemporary acapella recordings have taken now. Um, it is a challenge to get the that, that performance feel, um, things like dynamics, um, uh, the, this, the, the, natural, the natural ebb and flow of phrasing. Um, those things can get lost. On the plus side, and which is, I think, uh, more compelling for many, which is why most people no longer do analog-style recordings, is you know the pitch is the, the pitch is perfect, the time is perfect. In the acapella world, it's the equivalent of using a Photoshop to a touch up a picture to make it look just so. Does it matter if the audience only really cares about the final product, not what's gone into it? I have qualms about the direction that uh, contemporary recordings have taken, and what I feel is the increasingly, um, the increasing role of the engineer in the process. I feel that contemporary acapella recordings are, are less honest than they used to be. Ah, yes, the purest question, the need to be able to reproduce live what we do on a recording. I know I'm one of the people who kind of pulled you somewhat kicking and screaming uh, into the new recording age uh, with one of the recordings that I put of uh, Tiz Moretz onto Bojack, The Best of Jewish Acapella, Volume 1. And in fact, it's interesting, uh, although I have been, I, I don't know if accused is quite the right word, uh, of being a purist on Bojack, uh, that project took about five years to come to fruition from the time it was conceived to the time that it was actually put out. Part of the reason is that many of the Jewish a cappella groups sounded great live, but they had no clue how to record themselves in a way that sounded, well, sounded good. The stuff was sounding dated. It was very imperfect, um, even by the standards of recording around one microphone. So I had to actually put up some money to re-record or re-engineer, remix some of their songs, some of the collegiate a cappella group's songs, in order to get them to sound good. And one of the things I discovered is that a great engineer will not only have mastery of the techniques, but also still not lose track of that great performance. So I'm wondering, in your experience, have there been situations where you have been actually wowed by the experience of being with an engineer or using the technology in order to bring out performance in ways that the old methods actually may not have been able to do? I am impressed with what engineers can do uh, with a cappella recordings. It's something I struggle with because I do find it, I mean, I use the word honest, and that's, that, that is a loaded term, uh, I understand. I guess what I feel is that one can say that it levels the playing field. By that I mean you no longer have to be a really good a cappella group to make a really good a cappella CD. I would argue that the groups that weren't making good recordings probably weren't making great performances either. The Jewish collegiate a cappella scene has been uh, the poor stepsister of the secular scene for many years, um, and it has come a long way. And now um, it, I think it, is, it's, it would be an interesting thing to chart the relation between the Jewish collegiate scene and the secular collegiate scene in terms of how these groups have developed, the kinds of music they're singing. For a, lo a long time, there was really no, there was no good comparison between a top secular group and, a, and even a top Jewish group. And the, and the average 
the average secular group and the average Jewish group, they, they just weren't on the same same level. And yet, look at us now. I mean, we have groups that are trying out for the sing-off, and who knows, maybe one of them will make it onto this upcoming third season. We've seen a viral video from a collegiate group explode into more than 5 million views. We've seen groups win uh, contemporary a cappella society awards and make it into the finals for national contests. So, and I should say also, I touched on this earlier, I was a judge at the Kol HaOlam project, which was billed as the first national collegiate a cappella, Jewish collegiate a cappella contest. And I have to tell the story that. I was running a little bit late for the event. It was taking place in Washington, D.C. I was staying in Silver Spring, Maryland, and it took me a little longer than expected to get to the event after Shabbat was over. When I walked in, the speakers were playing outside in the hallway what I presumed was recorded music. It was Yerushalayim, Shal Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold, and it sounded just wonderful. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I'm not late. I They're still playing the the pre-recorded music while everybody's getting their seats. And then I walked into the auditorium, uh, which was filled with well over 800 attendants. And I was stunned to see, I believe, I don't want to make this mistake, but I'll take a chance. I believe it was Kaskaset, that, well, the University of Binghamton, that was on stage performing Yerushalayim Shal Zahav live. And at that moment, I realized, wow, we've really finally matured as an industry and can be every bit as good as our secular brothers and sisters. I want to talk a little bit about your arrangements. Earlier, we played one of your Columbia Clefhanger songs, Horeni. And when I was first beginning uh, to form Bitajon and write original music for Bitajon, still, besides 613, one of the only Jewish a cappella groups that performs original music, stunningly. Uh, a little shout out, by the way, to uh, any of the collegiate a cappella groups that are starting to get into original music. To me, that seems like the final frontier where everything should be moving. I mean, look, if Glee can do it, why can't we do it, right? Right. So at the time in 1991, I had nothing to go on. I had no way of learning how to write and arrange this a cappella stuff. There was no internet. I didn't know about any books. I didn't know about any resources, anybody that did it professionally. It was really uh, me going into your concerts and recording your songs and trying my best to deconstruct them. And in fact, the very first Bitajon song that I wrote and that we recorded, it's the first song on the very first Bitajon album, Vayihi, was influenced by your arrangements, the doot-doos and the bop-bops that you One, were doing two, at that three, time. Four, <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how you go about arranging a song? Not so much how you did it then, but how you do it now. I, that's uh, difficult to answer because each song presents its own challenges. I try, when I'm doing something in the contemporary style, I try and um, I try and mix uh, what I think are fresh ideas and, and, and new ways, uh, new vowel sounds, new approaches, new textures, um, with things that I think will work with my particular ensemble. I try to arrange for a group, um, or if I, either for one of my groups, or if, if it's someone asking me to do arrangement for them, I'll try and get as much information about it. Is it a college group? Is it a high school group? Uh, how many people do they have on each part? How how low can the bases go, et cetera? So I, I I think it's important 
that one arranges with ideally a particular group in mind, and if not, you know, uh, a, a, a style or a level of group. So it's it's uh, it's unfortunate that sometimes there are good arrangements out there that are that are not uh, they're not done well because a particular acapella group can't can't handle them. And I'm sure the reverse is true as well. There may be some very good groups out there who are selling themselves short because they don't have the arrangements to to really uh, highlight their talents. <laughs> You're listening to The Coal Cast. I'm Jordan B. Gorfinkel. Gorf. Daniel Hankin and I talked for the better part of two hours. If you're interested in hearing more of the conversation, or you just want Jaka advice or perhaps my Bubby's noodle kugel recipe, mmm, delish, feel free to get in touch. Visit jewishcartoon.com, seek me out on Facebook, or email gorf at voicesforisrael.org, or just Google or Bing me. You'll find me. And keep an eye out for my newest musical effort, Simcha and Gorfinkel, my partnership with Rockapella legend Sean Altman. I'll let Mike Boxer know when our debut video is released so you can help us go viral. Thanks in advance. Before we go, a shout-out to Kas Kasset, featured on the May 15, 2011 installment of Mouth Off, the all-things secular acapella podcast, which, by the way, I am enthralled with, and I urge all of you to download and listen to regularly. In fact... This Colcast episode was partly inspired by what they do on Mouth Off. Kaskaset is the only Jewish group to be played by hosts Dave Brown and Christopher Diaz, other than 613. One more shout-out to my new friend Michael Glassman, one of the producers on NBC's The Sing-Off. I have news about how the Jewish groups that tried out are progressing, but if I told you, Michael would have to kill me. That would be bad. So tune in next time, and we'll work on getting Mike Boxer a proper update. Let me bring us out by taking us full circle to the first professional Jewish a cappella group's first ever song, Eshet Chayil. This recording was captured live, the first time Bitachon ever performed at a New York talent show. It was comedians, poets, and us. Adam Fishman, Ezra Galler, Dave Metkowski, Avi Schreiber, Yuri Shoshan, and I— Singing without music. I have to admit, listening to it makes me anxious. I'm just waiting for one of the singers to mess up. And I was there. I know how it turned out. Remember, prior to this 1991 performance, no one had ever done original Jewish a cappella. This was the first time. So, how'd we do? And what was the audience response? Listen and judge for yourself. This is your guest host, Gorf. Thanks for making Jewish a cappella history with me, and here's to a long and prosperous future for Jewish a cappella and the Colcast. Lechaim.
Stop it.